0: Harold Bloom, who died in 2019, was probably the most famous and highly regarded literary critic in the English-speaking world. Uh, But he was certainly no friend to biblical Christianity. Harold Bloom believed that John Mark, the author of Mark's Gospel, he believed him to be a literary genius. Now, that sounds like a compliment, but it's not. Uh, Bloom deemed Mark's Jesus one of the three great fictional literary characters of all time. The other two being Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and Shakespeare's King Lear. So the hubris, the arrogance of such a statement is terrifying. It's horrifying. The greatest fictional literary characters of all time. Two persons of the triune Godhead and King Lear. Like many, Harold Bloom saw the Jesus of the Bible as being completely divorced from the Jesus of history. And this is the world that we live in. Many would deem the passage that we considered last week, Mark's uh, 13 verse prologue, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 1, they would consider that to be just historical hogwash. That's clearly stuff that the early church just made up about this guy Jesus. Um, If there is a God, if there is a God, then he, she, or it certainly doesn't interact with their creation in that sort of fashion, like we see in these first 13 verses. Jesus is not the Messiah, nor is he the Son of God, Israel reduced to one person. That's nonsense. He is not the Lord God incarnate. Jesus of Nazareth is just a man, which also means he isn't more powerful than John the Baptist. Nor is he the long prophesied Messiah, who both Gives and receives the Holy Spirit. There is no such person as the Holy Spirit. And there's no such thing as prophecy. Nor is Jesus God's chosen one. Come to do battle with the powers of evil. Who has angels at his side. There's no such person as Satan. Angels don't exist. And evil is a cultural, subjective, sociological construct. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago in Israel, God... Entered into his fallen creation in the person of his beloved anointed son. And he went through all of Israel authoritatively proclaiming the good news of his kingdom. And our Lord proved his claims to authority by pushing back Satan's kingdom of darkness. Jesus tied up the strong man. Jesus plundered his house And the people who witnessed these acts, they marveled at his authority. And it's my prayer that God would take uh, his preached word this morning and by his spirit cause us to marvel afresh at the authority of his Christ. Believers and unbelievers alike, may we marvel at, may we be astonished by God's gracious salvation provision. So, How is the authority of God's anointed one? This one we've just read of in the first 13 verses. How is it now demonstrated? What do we see in our text today? If you look at your bulletins, or uh, you can see point number one. The authority of the anointed one is demonstrated by Jesus bringing the kingdom near in his good news ministry. Look with me at verse 14. After John was put in prison... John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. All right, let's tackle a tricky interpretive issue while our minds are still fresh. Uh, John the Baptist, he's just been thrown into prison. Uh, He's thrown into jail for an offense we learn about in chapter 6. So I'll talk about that when we get to chapter 6, Lord willing. But after John's imprisonment, we read in verse 14 here that Jesus went up to Galilee to proclaim the good news of God. Or literally, the gospel of God. Now, today, Christians, we too, we proclaim the gospel of God, right? We evangelize at every opportunity. We have we have good news that we want to be heralding to a lost world. So here's my question. Is the good news that Jesus proclaimed in Galilee the same gospel that we proclaim today? Is the content of Jesus' gospel message the same as our own today? I want you to answer that in your own mind right now. It's a bit of a trick question. The answer is both yes and no. Think of a a freight train, all right, moving from Ontario to British Columbia. As the train progresses along its journey, it takes on more and more freight. The empty cars are filled with more stuff as the train moves across the country. In the same way, a technical term like gospel, just like rest, temple, priest, sacrifice, sonship, those terms all take on theological freight As God's salvation progresses over time. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word, I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And and that, brothers and sisters, that's the content of the good news that we preach today, right? you Think of it like this in five things. Christ died for our sin and was raised. Christ died for our sin and was raised. That's the gospel. But that's not, it's not the same good news content that Jesus preaches throughout Galilee in Mark 1. Our Lord is not going into villages and explicitly heralding the fact that soon he will die on a Roman cross in accordance with the Scriptures, be buried and rise again on the third day according to Scriptures. He's not doing that. There aren't any texts that tell us that. No, as it's being used in verse 14, the good news of God refers to a narrative summary of Jesus' teaching. It's referring to the content of our Lord's message, which we now find in verse 15. Verse 15 is the good news. The time has come, or literally, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, obviously, Jesus taught a whole lot more going village to village in just those 17 words, right, that make up verse 15. But Mark wants his readers to see Jesus' announcement of the coming kingdom and the necessity of repentance and faith. That is at the very heart of our Lord's teaching. Jesus is preaching, a new era of fulfillment has begun. The kingdom of God has come near with my ministry, as John the Baptist prophesied. God's kingdom, his rule over people's hearts and lives begins now. All that was prophesied in the Old Testament, now is the time for those things to be fulfilled. God's good timing, it's wrapped up with me By sovereign decision, God has made this point in time, the beginning of my public ministry, the critical one, in which all the moments of promise and fulfillment in the past find their significance. So, repent of your sins and believe in that good news, of which I authoritatively speak as the anointed one of God, as the Christ. And then Jesus proves his authoritative claims by doing the works of the anointed one. And he does that by pushing back Satan's kingdom of darkness. Of course, the people of Israel had been long expecting the kingdom of God. It was the next big date, circled in red on their eschatological calendars. But their understanding of how God's kingdom would dawn. uh, What it would look like. Who its citizens would be. The nature of the king who would rule over this kingdom. The nature of his rule wasn't biblically correct. Uh, How so? Where were they off? This is very important to understand. We're going going to do this now, and then we're set for the rest of the series. Israel was expecting a big bang flash kind of kingdom that would instantly, instantly usher in the eternal and heavenly rule of God with the appearance of the Messiah. Which is why the people of Jerusalem were so excited when Jesus makes his entrance into the capital city in Mark chapter 11, 7 to 10. Remember that account? When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went on ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. But by chapter 11, Jesus has already told these people, through his parables, that the kingdom of God comes in stages. It's not a big bang flash. In fact, 2,000 years later, we still haven't seen the kingdom in its final consummated form, have we? With that awaits Jesus' return. All that to say, verses 14 to 15 summarizes Jesus' teaching ministry. The good news he is preaching, going to village to village, is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The time has been fulfilled in accordance with Holy Scripture, right? It's been fulfilled. Now is the time. God's rule over his people, over their hearts, their lives, is now being established. It was inaugurated at Jesus' baptism. When God's Son was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And people must now repent of their sin and believe that good news. As we saw last week, divine acts of good news previously announced by Isaiah the prophet. Have now arrived in the person of Jesus the Messiah. But make no mistake, this is so important to understand. Jesus is no prophet who just merely announces the coming of the kingdom. It's because the king has come that the kingdom is present. He is the kingdom's effector. He brings the kingdom with him. It's a massive, massive authority claim. And this is the message that Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord, authoritatively preached 2,000 years ago in Galilee. And brothers and sisters, he's preaching us. Again, today, by His Spirit, through His written word, through His preached words, I'm preaching this sermon. Point number one, the authority of the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah, is demonstrated by Jesus bringing the kingdom near in His good news ministry, which leads us to our second point. The authority of the Anointed One is demonstrated by Jesus calling His disciples to Himself, A call rooted in his messianic authority. Look at verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. I love these verses. I love them. But at first blush, think about this. Aren't they a little bit out of place compared to the majesty of what's just come before? I'd say, no, not at all. This is absolutely glorious. But think of it. After the transcendent majesty of verses 1 through 15, right? So the authority claims, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic scripture, the anointing of the Spirit, all the claims to deity. God the Father's voice coming from heaven, the overcoming of Satan, the inauguration of the kingdom of God. That's all just that's just happened. After all that, the first recorded act of Jesus' public ministry. Is his calling four common laborers into fellowship with himself? Loved ones, Mark is doing two things here. First, he's recording history. Uh, Jesus had disciples, and Mark wants to show us that this is how he called them. And uh, and uh, the, these are characters of Mark's narratives, and this, these are their introduction. But second. Second, Mark is showing us something of the nature of discipleship here. Remember, this is one of the two major purposes of his gospel. Remember, who who is Jesus? What does true discipleship to Jesus look like? That's the whole gospel of Mark, those two things. And we get our first lessons in discipleship here in verses 16 to 20. The first thing we should notice is that Jesus seeks out his own disciples. Did you notice that? He seeks out his own disciples, which is very different from how the rabbis or scribes of Judaism attracted their students, or how it works in academia today, for that matter. If a student desires to be the pupil of a certain teacher, it always depends on the initiative of the student, right? Um, If you're interested in higher education... You won't find university profs or experts in the field beating a path to your door. You go to them. But Jesus seeks out those whom he wills to be his disciples. It's not dependent on the disciples' initiative or the disciples' will. And, friend, hear me. You could make no greater mistake, it's fatal. You could make no greater error than to believe the decision to become a disciple of Jesus Christ is always, at all times, within your grasp. That it's just a matter of exercising your free will and showing some spiritual initiative. You may think you can do it or feel like you could, but actually you can't and the proof that you can't is that you have yet to repent and believe the gospel. The Bible is clear. Until we are born again, born from above by God's spirit, every every human being is dead, spiritually dead, in trespasses and trespasses in sin. Our very wills have been captured by Satan is a horrifying predicament. The Christian writer Arthur W. Pink wrote this 100 years ago, and not much has changed, I'm afraid. He writes this, When addressing the unsaved, preachers today often draw an analogy between God sending out the gospel to the sinner and a sick man in bed with some healing medicine on the table by his side. All he needs to do is reach out his hand and take it. But, in order for this illustration to be in any way true to the picture which Scripture gives us of the fallen and depraved sinner, the sick man in bed must be described as one who is blind, so that he cannot see the medicine. Ephesians 4.18 His hand is paralyzed, Romans 5.6, six that he is unable to reach for it. And his heart not only is devoid of all confidence in the medicine, but filled with hatred against the physician himself. John fifteen eighteen. 18. goes on to say, Oh, what superficial views of man's desperate plight are today entertained. Christ came here not to help those who are willing to help themselves, but to do for his people what they were incapable of doing for themselves. Isaiah 42, 7 to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So friend, if in fact you see, you see your need of Christ, if you feel even the slightest tug in your heart to be his disciple, to repent and to believe, you feel the slightest tug, that's a sign of supernatural life. And you need to act on it immediately and prove to yourself that this is indeed the saving grace of God, that it is indeed the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. I read that the uh, the Powerball lottery is up to $1.5 billion today. The ethics of gambling aside, if you picked the winning lottery numbers, would you just cavalierly chuck your ticket into the trash because you can just think up a whole new set of winning numbers tomorrow just as easily? Of course not. (laughs) That would be crazy. So why would you treat the saving grace of God in the same fashion? If you believe God has given you grace to enable you to close with Christ right now, to choose for Christ right now as you sit there in your pew but you don't want to you're going to wait a while yet For a time where it's kind of more convenient after you enjoy some more of the autonomy and sin that this fallen world affords, then you'll repent. If that is your spiritual game plan, friend, let me warn you that you are presuming upon God's grace. And there is no guarantee, there is no guarantee that He will give you grace to repent and believe the gospel tomorrow, let alone on your deathbed. Quit playing Russian roulette with your eternal soul. Today, today, if you hear Jesus calling you, come, follow me, be my disciple. Do so now, without delay. Second, and again, this is wrapped up with Jesus' authority as the Messiah. Jesus is the unqualified subject of the call, right? Jesus doesn't say, come, follow a list of rules. No, he says, come, Follow me. Follow me. Christians follow a person. It's a short point, but it's important, it's indispensable. Jesus calls these four men to follow him. Jesus seeks out his own disciples. Jesus is the subject of the call to discipleship. Thirdly, Jesus' discipleship is a call to service I will send you out to fish for people. Or as uh, it's so memorably translated in the King James Version, I will make you to become fishers of men. Christian, Jesus has not called you to be his disciple so that you can kind of glide through life hassle-free with your get-out-of-hell-free card tucked away safely in your wallet. Jesus sought you out to be his disciple that you might seek others to follow him. There's a job here. Jesus has given you a job. I will make you to become fishers of men. But Pastor John, I haven't had adequate evangelistic preparation. I haven't been to seminary. I'm not smart enough. I'm not holy enough. No, don't you see? There is no special preparation. Jesus doesn't choose the most socially prominent, the best trained, or even the most religiously devout. In these five verses... The Lord of heaven comes to humble fishermen. It won't be angels who serve as gods, as Jesus' evangelistic ambassadors, but these sinful laborers who stink of fish. 1 Corinthians 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So, Christian, are you... Foolish, weak, lowly, despised. Are you one of the are-nots of society? Then be of good cheer, right? You got exactly what it takes. Jesus didn't find his disciples in the synagogue. He was just passing by on the beach. Jesus finds his disciples in the midst of everyday life, going about their daily routines. However, his authoritative command to follow him shatters their comfortable everyday existence, just shatters it, make no mistake. The call to Christian discipleship is costly. And I would say, PJ, Prosper, Stephanie, all you upcoming baptismal candidates, the Church of Jesus Christ isn't composed of eavesdroppers, eavesdroppers and onlookers and cheerleaders who are sitting on the sidelines. It will cost you everything you have to be Jesus' disciple. Our Lord wants us to know, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate by comparison father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. Or Matthew eight twenty two, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And, and that's not just a message for new believers, right? Faith, Peter, Paul, Erica, Mary Jo, Freddie, Anne. You've been walking with the Lord for years. Even so, your master tells you, I come first. Your family, even life itself, comes a distant second. In fact, your ambitions in life, where you find your greatest joy, your contentment, your satisfaction, that's to be wrapped up with serving me and delighting my glory. You no longer live for yourself. Put comfort and convenience aside. If you would be my disciple, live for me. Of course, from the lips of anyone else, such a totalitarian call is appalling and outrageous. Can you imagine anybody else saying that to you? But Jesus isn't just anybody, right? Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Anointed One. And Christians soon learn that Jesus demands far less of his disciples than he gives. Jesus seeks his own disciples. Jesus is the subject of the call to discipleship. Discipleship is a call to service. There is no special preparation for discipleship. And discipleship is costly. It will cost you everything. Which leads us to our third and concluding point. The authority of the Anointed One is demonstrated by Jesus' teaching, healing, and his exorcisms. Look at verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. According to my Wikipedia research, near the beginning of his career as a physicist, Albert Einstein believed that Newtonian mechanics were no longer adequate to reconcile the laws of classical mechanics with the laws of the electromagnetic field. I'm just reading this verbatim, okay? I don't know a thing about this. So, Albert, who was working as a patent clerk at the time, whipped up his special theory of relativity to reconcile these two things. Energy equals mass times the velocity of light in a vacuum squared, or E equals mc squared. The title of his paper, published in 1905, was on the electrodynamics of moving bodies. Einstein's paper didn't contain a single footnote. Think about that. What Einstein theorized in 1905 was totally original. In effect, Einstein was saying, Newton told you this. I say unto you this. E equals M C squared. He was speaking with authority. And know this, friends, what I'm preaching to you today about God and about God's ways, not one not one word of it is based on my own authority, my own spiritual insights. I wouldn't dare. I don't care how talented a public speaker a man might be or how excellent his stories and illustrations are. He could be William Shakespeare in the pulpit. Nothing a preacher says will ever be as important and as powerful and as effective and as a dude with the Holy Spirit's power as faithfully preaching a biblical text verse by verse. Making those progressive, covenantal, biblical, theological connections and applying the text to the life of the congregation. Nothing compares to that. Any knowledge a human being may have of God is always, it's always a mediated knowledge. It's based on what God has revealed of Himself to us. To a, to a very, very limited extent in nature itself, a la Romans 1. And in the 66 books... Of canonical scripture because we don't have we don't none of us have direct unmediated access to the god's mind and god's will do we but jesus does that's the difference jesus actually does the, the teaching of jesus is teaching with authority divine authority His teaching isn't like the teaching of the scribes and the religious leaders of the day. Theirs is a derived authority. Their understanding of the scriptures comes from the tradition of the elders and the fathers of Judaism. So they would qualify every reading, every judgment with, Rabbi so-and-so says such-and-such. Whereas Jesus receives his authority directly from his Father in heaven. Jesus teaches without footnotes. His teaching is qualitatively different because his knowledge of God is unmediated. Which is precisely what our Lord tells Nicodemus in John 3. Do you recall? He says, Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. But in verse 23, this authority that people perceive in Jesus is tested. The kingdom of God now goes head to head with its unseen ultimate opponent, the power structure, structure of evil at work in this fallen world. Jesus confronts a man who is possessed by a demon. Now, this really, I think it calls for balance in our own cultural context. We shouldn't assume every case of what today is referred to as psychiatric illness is the result of demonic activity. But neither should we adopt the reductionism that links all demonism to chemical imbalances in the brain. Right? There's a, there's a middle path that we need to steer here as Bible-believing Christians. Demon possession is real. The Word of God tells us so. But think for a moment what demon possession signifies. The mind and body of an image-bearer of God has been hijacked. It's been hijacked by satanic forces. The person now is a walking, screaming billboard for the evil one. A billboard that proclaims, I, Satan, rule on planet Earth. This fallen world is mine. Despair, sinful humans. Look at how far away from God you are. You are utterly in my control. Despair. Despair. Verse 23. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what this is, what we see here, is the conflict between the kingdom of God and the dominion of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the coming head to head. Between one anointed with God's spirit... And one held captive by an unclean spirit. And because demons are supernatural powers, they recognize the mission and the authority of Jesus. Verse 25, be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Friends, do you recall from last week? What is the mission of the anointed one according to Isaiah 61? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. And of course, of course the ultimate the ultimate way Jesus proclaims freedom for the prisoners, the ultimate way he sets the oppressed free is through his sin atoning death and resurrection. Jesus pays the death penalty for our sin. Jesus bears God's wrath in our place. The just for the unjust, so that God may be just in forgiving the sins of guilty sinners, imputing to us the very righteousness of Christ himself, filling us with the Holy Spirit and freeing us from Satan's tyranny. Jesus has the power and the authority to do all of that. The ultimate way Jesus proclaims freedom for the prisoner, the ultimate way that he sets the oppressed free is through his sin, atoning death, and resurrection. But first... He first demonstrates that power and authority in his exorcisms. Jesus here is pushing back Satan's kingdom of darkness. He is setting the oppressed free in the power of the spirit. According to Mark, this is where the inbreaking of God's kingdom begins. Not in the human arena, but in the cosmic spiritual arena. Jesus... Because he is the anointed one, he proclaims not only the arrival of the kingdom of God, but in his public ministry, Jesus manifests its arrival by plundering the household of Satan through his exorcism of demons and healing the sick. And it's the healing of the sick that Mark turns our attention to next. Look at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Again, here we see the authority of Jesus. No spells, right? No incantations. Nothing showy, nothing pretentious. He just simply goes over to Peter's mother-in-law, takes her by the hand, and helps her up. (coughs) Verse 32. That evening after sunset, so that means Sabbath now is over the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Man, what a desperate scene that must have been. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Why... Doesn't Jesus want demons telling everyone that He is, in fact, the Holy One of God? I mean, all plebiscity is good plebiscity, right? Like, why, why not? Why does Jesus command the demons not to speak? Well, on a practical, strategic level... Jesus doesn't want to be arrested and crucified at this early stage in his ministry. In the ancient world, the gods were fundamentally about power, and Israel's popular expectation was for a mighty warrior messiah right, who would drive out the Romans. But there is no king but Caesar, and anybody who contests that is crucified. So practically, that's a good reason. But secondly, and more important, much more important, Jesus silences the demons because their confession would mislead people. Any understanding of who Jesus really is at this point, at this early stage in His ministry, is premature. Why is that? Because the true nature of Jesus' divine sonship and power cannot, it cannot be properly understood apart from His obedient death on the cross. Only at the cross... Can Jesus be rightly known for who he is? Which means every utterance about Jesus being the Holy One of God, or Jesus being the Messiah, or the Son of God, from whatever source, demons, anybody, doesn't matter, it always begs the question, what kind of Messiah? What kind of Son of God? What kind of Holy One? And before the cross, the categories just aren't there. At this point, every answer is a premature half-truth, and that's a lie. It's thus false. That's why later, Jesus forbids his own disciples to speak about his Messiahship. Even after Peter's great confession in chapter 8, 29, do you recall? Uh, But what about you, Jesus asked, what do you say? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. That's excellent. Praise God for that. Very next verse. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Here's why, right? At the, the time will come for these public confessions, but not now. It's too early. He has to go to the cross. No one's anticipating that. <clears throat> Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Just as an aside, I mean, if it's good enough for Jesus, hopefully it's good enough for us, right? Early in the morning, getting up, go to a solitary place and pray. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled through Galilee preaching in their synagogues. And driving out demons. As Jesus' reputation as a miracle worker grows, he has to face a sinful attitude problem on the part of the people. They're basically thinking, Jesus, we don't care who you are or what your ministry signifies so much as what you can do for us. Jesus has come to preach repentance, he's come to preach the nearness of the kingdom of God. The time has been fulfilled. Repent, believe. But the people are only thinking of relief from pain and affliction. To their thinking, Jesus is a wonder-working genie. right? He's a miracle worker. At, At best, later on, he might be a prophet. And his disciples, too, they fail to see the problem. They don't recognize Jesus' dignity or his function as God's anointed one. And so they fail to understand who Jesus is. They fail to understand his mission. Which is why they say stuff like, What are you doing here all by yourself, Jesus? Man, you should be out there in the midst of the clamoring multitude, building up your reputation as a healer. But the crowds gathering in Capernaum, clamoring at Jesus' door, crying, Heal us! Heal us! Cast out our demons! They're not repenting. They're not preparing the dawning of the kingdom. They failed to perceive the significance of Jesus' conflict with demonic powers. They don't understand what's going on. And they certainly don't understand the cross that come either. That's completely beyond them. The preaching of John the Baptist though. Everything he said about Jesus. Right over their heads. They're not thinking about it. Yes, in passion and grace Jesus extends to them healing. But it's not primarily for this purpose the Son of God came into the world. Which is why Jesus interprets the miracles... Or interrupts his miracles and goes somewhere else. He actually goes somewhere else. Right? To do what? To preach. To preach what? The good news of God. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The authority of the anointed one... Is demonstrated by Jesus bringing the kingdom near... In his good news ministry calling his disciples to himself, a call rooted in his messianic authority and in his teaching, healing, and exorcisms. So let me close my sermon today by making two appeals. First, to the unbeliever, to the person who is here today who is not a Christian, who does not accept the authority of Christ Jesus on every aspect, over every aspect of their existence. Friend, if I were to ask you, um, who was Napoleon Bonaparte? Who is Socrates? Who is Alexander the Great? Who is Muhammad? Who is Gautama the Buddha? If you didn't know, well, you might profit from doing a few quick Google searches, I suppose, but your ignorance carries no eternal repercussions. All those men possessed a kind of authority while they lived on the earth, and they they all had disciples who were devoted to them. But the authority and discipleship we read in Mark's opening chapter has no basis for comparison. Harold Bloom, the literary critic that I mentioned before, he was an intellectual genius, but he was a moral fool. His faculties were given over to the service of Satan and his works. He was telling impressionable young students that two members of the Godhead, God the Father and God the Son, we're fictional literary characters. And if you're here today believing that your disbelief in Jesus and his claims, what we're reading here in the Word of God, is primarily is primarily intellectual in nature. You're just you're kind of too smart for that. It's not. The problem's not your brain in that sense, your intellect. It's actually it's deliberate moral rebellion. You have a moral problem. It's moral rebellion against your creator God. It is cosmic anarchistic treason for which you will be held to account on the day of judgment. Pray to God that he would grant you grace to believe what's being preached today. Pray to him for grace to believe and to repent. Keep coming back to these Sunday services. You're more than welcome to come for the next 20 years, 30 years as, as someone who's not a Christian. That's fine. We want that. Come here every Sunday. Each week, we're going to learn something new from Mark's Gospel about who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him, to be His faithful disciple. You're welcome to meet with us and ask questions. We want to get to know you. Come out to uh, Christianity 101 a week from now. There'll be more details about that in a minute. And the believers gathered here today, let me say this. We speak of men like Socrates and Buddha and Muhammad and Napoleon in the past tense. Because they're dead. We don't speak of Jesus in the past tense. We speak of him in the present and future tense. Because he is alive. He is alive and he reigns. He rules. King Jesus is on his throne, and universal authority has been granted to him by his Father. All authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has authority over Satan and demons, over all angels, both good and evil, over the natural universe, laws and forces, stars, galaxies, planets, black holes. Jesus has authority over all molecular and atomic reality. Atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, subatomic particles, genetic structures, DNA, chromosomes. Jesus has authority over all plant and animal life, big and small. Whales and redwoods, giant squid and giant oaks, bacteria, viruses, parasites, germs. Jesus has authority over all the parts and functions of the human body. Every beat of your heart. Every breath that you draw, every electrical jump across 100 trillion synapses in your brain, Jesus a, has authority over all governments. Jesus has authority over the church and over every soul and every moment of every life that has ever been or ever will be. There is nothing, nothing in heaven or on earth over which Jesus does not have authority authority that he does not have the right and the power to do with as he pleases you hear that the right and the power to do with as he pleases the scope and the magnitude of the authority of Jesus Christ is infinite because he is God he is king he is Lord yes his rule is presently contested by billions of people who refuse to bow the knee but one day that won't be the case and when Jesus returns, all those who are in Christ will share in his authority, and we will rule his recreated universe with him as co-regents. But first things first, we want Jesus to have full authority over our lives now, not just in the new heavens and the new earth to come. Because the believer is never so happy. In fact, in fact, the true Christian can never be happy as when or until we are satisfied in Jesus' perfect rule over our present existence. Perfect rule over it. Christian, is there nothing so precious to you as the sovereign authority of Jesus over your life? Don't, don't allow Satan to rob you of your only true happiness. My prayer is that through prayerful consideration of Mark chapter 1, we will find our joy in the authority of God's anointed one. Amen.